I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible uh, to Genesis chapter 10. In the email that went out, if you're paying attention, uh, it said we were going to cover chapter 10 today, but we're actually going to cover 10 and most of chapter 11. I hope that's okay with you. Um, There's a lot of names. We're going to look at a lot of names today. Uh, Everyone's favorite part. But uh, we're going to go through to verse 26 of chapter 11. And I wonder if anyone would be shocked if I told you that our text today shines the spotlight on humanity's sinfulness. That it points us to the necessity of a Redeemer and it reveals to us more of God's plan to send that Redeemer, to send His Son. I trust if you've been tracking it all with us through Genesis and, well, at any point over the last 10 years, then uh, this, none of this will be surprising to you. Uh, the text that we are looking at does indeed advance the storyline of the book of Genesis and indeed the Bible itself. Uh, this redemptive history is sometimes called the history of redemption. So it, it, it tells us about the storyline of Genesis, the storyline of the Bible, but there's a lot of specific detail in here as well, a lot of specific and detailed information. And so there's a lot here that is instructive to us, not only in seeing the storyline of the Bible be advanced, but also in understanding some details about mankind and our own world today. And so as we work through this, I want to go through four We'll do this under four headings. There's four parts to the outline. I'll give those to you now, and then we'll uh, mention them as we go as well. But the first is man's common origin. Secondly, man's corrupt nature. Third, man's confused languages. And fourth, man's common hope. So common origin, corrupt nature, confused languages, and common hope. So we'll begin by reading chapter 10. And then we'll we'll read chapter 11 when we get there. We'll take this in in chunks. So Genesis 10, beginning in verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Tagarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rehama, and Sabtica. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ladim, Anamim, Lehabim, and Naphtahim. 
Pathrasim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his na- days the earth was divided, and his, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almudad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. We'll stop there for now. So first of all, notice at the very beginning that we have this phrase, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. So again, this signals this is now a new section beginning in Genesis. It's organized around that phrase. And this particular section is not terribly long. It begins here in verse 1 and goes through to verse 9 of chapter 11. And in this section, it tells us very broadly what became of the sons of Noah and their offspring. Namely, they spread out and formed into various peoples and various nations across the earth. And so this chapter is often referred to as the table of nations. And we were told back in chapter 9, verse 19, that from the three sons of Noah, it says the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So it's already said that, and now here we are seeing that in a little more detail. Further, as we have said a number of times, the main focus of the book of Genesis narrows as the book progresses. It focuses in on a particular family line, a particular promised line. Uh, That is the the promise that was made in Genesis 3.15, this offspring who is to come. Genesis continues to narrow in on who is this going to be, from what family will it come. But as it goes, it also tells us what became of some of the other family lines that aren't that one. Um, So, for example, it will focus on, uh, it will zoom in on Isaac, but it also will tell us what became of Ishmael. So Isaac and Ishmael are both prominent in the story, but then the promised line is going to go through Isaac, and it kind of ties off with the genealogy of Ishmael and then focuses on Isaac. Same thing with Jacob and Esau. Both brothers are prominent, but eventually 
He'll say, here's what became of Esau, and then ties that off and carries on with Jacob and his descendants. And so this similar thing is what's happening here. Uh, We've already been told, we saw last time, this prophecy of Noah. We saw that the blessing was going to come through Shem. It was going to be through Shem's line. But before Moses goes into more detail about Shem's line, Moses gives us here more information on what happened to everyone else, what became of the rest. Again, namely, they spread out and they filled the earth and they became various nations. So human beings might have all kinds of differences from one place to another as we cross the globe, but we have a common heritage, a common descent from Noah. Now, we are going to move through chapter 10 here fairly quickly, and there's sort of uh, two schools, I guess, on this. Uh, Some commentators and even preachers, they take actually quite a bit of time in chapter 10, and they try to follow out all these different names and where these different people ended up and so on. And uh, certainly, there are, there's a lot of interesting information here. Uh, with some of the names, just we, don't, we simply don't really know. We're kind of guessing maybe who they became. Um, but with some of the names here, it's, it's, fast, it's quite fascinating. For example, the name Javan, who is an offspring of Japheth, uh, he's mentioned here. Uh, that is the Hebrew word for the Ionians or the Greeks. The Ionians are at least one branch of the Greeks, but that word is the Hebrew word that's used throughout the Bible for the Greeks. So you have the Greek nation descending here from Japheth. Likewise, uh, Medai, also a son of Japheth, um, that, that refers to the Medes. That's the name for the Medes. And if you think of uh, the book of Daniel, you have Darius the Mede, you have the Medo-Persian Empire that arises. So they'll factor in later in the scripture. And so uh, th- there's you know, some dig into all of these details and follow them all out. And then there's kind of another school. Uh, John Calvin, for example, he says, that's great. Uh, may God bless those who dig into all of those details. Uh, but for me, I'm content to kind of go with the, you know, the, the main gist of what's going on here. So that's kind of the um, tack we're taking today. We're going to be uh, Calvinists in a different sense today and go kind of quickly through this. Um, though uh, I acknowledge there's a lot of, of information here that's interesting and good that, that uh, we're just moving over rather quickly. Some of you will be disappointed and some of you will be relieved. <laughs> if you're disappointed, I can point you to some resources perhaps uh, if you want. Anyways, chapter 10, there's kind of three main sections here. In verses 2 to 5, we're told about Japheth's descendants. And this is the smallest section. And this is perhaps owing, I think this is plausible, a number of people point this out. This is perhaps owing is a short section because uh, the regions that these people go and possess were not as immediately significant for the people of Israel, the immediate audience uh, that Moses was writing to. That is that they're a little distant from them geographically. So the offspring of Japheth, we're told here, they go out to the coastlands, which refers to the lands around the Mediterranean Sea, particularly around the northern part of it, the northern coast, and a number of the islands there. But they did also settle into what is modern-day Turkey. And if you can picture the map, 
uh, even over to the Caspian Sea, and I think even further east as well. Um, so to, relative to Israel, these would be a, a northern people. Now, just uh, it's, I think worth noting, throughout chapter 10, the, the, the names that are given here, this is not an exhaustive list of, of everybody. Uh, it doesn't list every individual, but presumably the more notable. Uh, as well, there are names of individuals here, clearly, uh, Gomer, Javan, and so on. But there are also plural names in here, which may suggest uh, certain families or people groups or even nations that come, that descend from these individuals. So, for example, uh, in, the, in the first section here, it mentions Kittim in verse 4 and Dodanim. You see that I-M ending? That's a plural uh, ending in Hebrew, uh, just transliterated into English. And so if there's individual, it's not a straight genealogy as we often have of just individuals. It seems to be a mixture of individuals and then plural groups of people as well. So, so Japheth's descendants spread out, it says, with their languages, their clans, and their nations. And the, these people will factor into the Bible, particularly when we get to the New Testament, when the gospel goes out to these very lands. We talked a little bit more about that last time. And then the second section here, in verses 6 to 20, we have the offspring of Ham. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan being the sons of Ham that are mentioned. And generally, the people in this section settled in the northeastern region of Africa. So, obviously, Egypt, if you think of where Egypt is today. Um, but also, they settled in the Arabian Peninsula, and of course, Canaan and his descendants, we know where they settled in the land of Canaan, that would be known as the promised land here, where it becomes promised to Abraham. And, and in this section, there's also um, a, a story in there as well, if you will, a, a, an interjection here about this man Nimrod. And, and we'll come back to that in just a little bit. And obviously, there are other important names in this section. Uh, Babel is named here as one of the, the cities of Nimrod. And that word Babel is the word Babylon. Uh, in English, we see Babel sometimes used and other times Babylon. But in Hebrew, that's the same, same word. So it's the same place, same word uh, that might be, may or may not be news to you. Um, but it's the same, same Hebrew word used. So Babel is a significant name uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, Assyria and Nineveh is listed in here as well. And of course, the Philistines. And the Philistines, we know as an enemy of Israel, when Israel would enter into the land, uh, but they're not actually Canaanites, they're descendants of Egypt, it says here. So Ham's descendants, likewise, we're told, have their clans, their lands, their languages, and their nations. And then the third section is in verse 21 to 31, and this now gives the descendants of Shem. Now, Eber is the first name that is listed after Shem. But Eber is not Shem's son, it is Shem's grandson. This, by moving this ahead, it tells us this is a significant name. Eber is the man from whom the, he, the, the word Hebrew comes. In verse 25, we're told that Eber had two sons. 
The first is named Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, we're told. Uh, So Peleg means division. And this is quite likely, there's different views of what this is referring to. I think this is quite likely referring to the Tower of Babel incident that we'll see. And that this is telling us in advance uh, that, that this happened in the days of Peleg, or in the days when he was probably born, so he's named after this. But then interestingly here, Moses doesn't say anything about Peleg's descendants. Instead, this section follows his brother, Joktan, and his descendants. And this is another case of Moses tying off Joktan's descendants, these other sons or descendants of Eber. He's going to tie this off. He says nothing more of Peleg here, but he will return to Peleg in chapter 11 when he traces Abram's descent. So Abraham, the promised line, actually goes through Peleg, even though it just ends here with Peleg and doesn't carry on. So we'll pick that up later in chapter 11. So we have here in chapter 10 the spreading out across the earth of man and the formation of different nations with different languages and different lands. And this sets then the stage for the rest of the book of Genesis and indeed the Bible. And it also reminds us that, again, all of humanity, despite all of our differences, all of the diversity, all of the radically different languages and different cultures that have arisen in, our, in the times of the Bible and also in our own day now, despite all of these differences, we all trace ourselves back to Noah and to his sons. And, of course, ultimately we could go back further to Adam and to God himself as the creator of mankind. And again, I, I want to point out, as we did last time, the Old Testament is not unconcerned with all of these nations. It is true that God will permit them. He kind of sends them on their way, as we'll see. And he permits them to go in their ignorance. But the narrowing focus of Genesis on the people of Israel, on Jacob's, Jacob and Jacob's sons, is ultimately, the point is ultimately from that line, Christ would come and then bring blessing that would go to all of these other nations. And we'll see that next week, Lord willing, when we get to chapter 12 and what God says to Abraham or to Abram, as he is called, prior to God renaming him. So again, mankind, there's an equality among us. This doesn't mean that every culture and every place is just as good as another. You you can have more wicked people and relatively less wicked people, but all share in a human nature that is fallen and sinful. The problem with humanity is then a common one. And because, precisely because we share this common descent, we are offspring of Adam, offspring of Noah, regardless of where it is on the planet that we happen to live. And as we read from Revelation 5, 9, it is the blood of Christ that ransoms a people from every tribe and language and people and nation.
I'll just add here, and I don't know the best way to say this or where to fit this in, so we'll just do it now. But as we look at this, and as we go through this, and we look at all these different nations and languages and tribes and so on, I would encourage us to, to consider our attitude towards others. That we would not simply look at the nations around us, our own nation, unbelieving people, with scorn. It, it is right to call out sin. It is right to proclaim God's law that condemns sinners and to show this to people. But that we would also have some measure of compassion towards lost people. And we can easily have that slip. But we do share in human nature. If the gospel hadn't come to the ends of the earth, we wouldn't be here. Now, if we think about the Noahic covenant backing up a couple of weeks and and the commission that God gave to man to spread out, to fill the earth, we could initially read chapter 10 here and think, oh, here they are. They're just doing what God told them to do. How nice. Uh, This just maybe just happened organically. They're spreading out. Um, But this, of course, is not how it worked. Uh, in fact, we, we've already noted here, noticed three times here, that we're told these groups had different languages. And then we're told about this man, Nimrod, who we'll get to in a moment, but who I think is, is a tyrant. And then we're told that there was division upon the earth in the days of, of Peleg. And this all then foreshadows, I think, leads to what we then find in chapter 11. And so uh, chapter 11 Let's move there now and look at man's corrupt nature. Second point of our outline, man's corrupt nature. As we come to chapter 11, uh, many people argue or will try to argue that you have a competing, two competing views here about how we got different nations on the earth. Chapter 10 is one view. It just kind of happened. They went forth. And then chapter 11, 11 is some other sort of ancient view where God had to kind of force the issue and whoever compiled Genesis just kind of stuck these together and they're not really consistent and they don't really fit. And people make those kinds of claims to try to discredit the Bible. They do that elsewhere. If you remember back in chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, the same thing is done there. Chapter 1, you have this account of creation, including the creation of man and woman. And then into chapter 2, it kind of backs up and gives us more details on the creation of man and woman and this garden and so on. And some people try to argue these are two different views. They're incompatible. And it's just not at all a necessary conclusion to draw. The latter story is giving us more detailed information to help us better understand what came first. And I think that's precisely what's happening uh, with chapter 11. It, it backs up and shows us a little more of, of how chapter 10 worked itself out, how the people came to be spread abroad and to possess their different languages. And we see, of course, that it was not owing to their glad, happy obedience, uh, nor were these various languages that developed just a purely natural uh, phenomenon. Again, the people were helped along, if you will, by God. So I I want to get to chapter 11, but just before, uh, back up to verse 8 of chapter 10, 
to, to where we read about Nimrod. We have here a relatively long interjection about this man, Nimrod. And I understand this to be setting us up a little bit for chapter 11. When you're reading a, a genealogy and suddenly there's a, a sentence that seems out of place or something like that thrown in, we saw this with Enoch. Uh, that, that's a way of drawing our attention to this, to this person or this, this incident. Now, when you, you first read verse 8 and following about Nimrod, it, to me, it's not immediately obvious if Nimrod's, what to think of him. Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Uh, so it says he's a mighty man. Like, well, David had mighty men. That wasn't a bad thing. Uh, to be a mighty hunter before the Lord could be a good thing. Uh, he has a kingdom, we're told here, which isn't necessarily on its own bad. Uh, but I do think the best way to understand Nimrod is that he is indeed a wicked man. So in verse 8, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Now, the nearest place to Genesis chapter 10, where we see this phrase, this concept of mighty men, is back in chapter 6, where we find mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And here we say that Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. So I take that reference to him being first to mean either he's the first on this side of the flood, the post-flood world, or it could possibly also be translated that Nimrod began to be a mighty man on the earth. That word first and began in Hebrew, that it, it genuinely could be translated legitimately either way. So King James, for example, says he began to be a mighty man on the earth. So I, I don't think there's any discrepancy here with the fact that there were men called mighty men of old. And if you remember back in chapter 6, that comes in that section about the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim and the men of renown and so on. And I argued back then that it referred to men of violence, these mighty men. They were warriors and men of violence. And it wasn't a good thing. In fact, violence was one of the great sins that was proliferating upon the earth and a reason why the flood was warranted by God. And so I, I take this statement that he is a mighty man here, Nimrod, to be a negative one, that he's a man of violence. And last time we had mighty men in the Bible, things didn't go well for mankind. So we're seeing a, that this sinful nature, this corrupt nature, it, it's still here, as we have been seeing, as God himself has said. We've seen it even in Noah to a part. And now we're seeing some repetition here. Here's another mighty man. Verse 9 goes on to say he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And there's even a saying that arose, like a mighty hunter before, uh, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It is possible this simply means Nimrod was a great hunter of wild game. He was renowned as both a great soldier and as a great hunter. But many also see in here a likely reference to him hunting not merely animals, but men. When it says that he did this before the Lord, uh, that's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, it can be a good thing. And David danced with all his might before the Lord in his presence, pleased God. Uh, but also the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah were great before the Lord. 
actually could even mean here that he's defying the Lord. He's doing this in the Lord's presence. He knows he's doing this. God doesn't miss it. And the, the idea that this could refer to men here, that he's hunting men, I think fits with the fact that he was a mighty man, if that indeed is, he's a man of violence, and also with what we see in verse 10, where it says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calne in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. This is the first reference that we have to every, any kingdom of man. And it begins with Babel. And we know, we will find out at least, how godless of a city and a place Babel was. And it would seem that not only was he a king over his kingdom, but that he was also seeking to conquer others as he's spreading it out. And so Nimrod, I take as a mighty man that is a violent man who is a king, he is a conqueror. This is Nimrod. Now let's jump ahead to chapter 11. And we'll, we'll read verses 1 to 9, and then, and then we'll look at it in more detail. But verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So verse 1 tells us something of the timing of this, the setting of it. It's a time when all of the earth spoke the same language. Uh, We're not told exactly what language that was. Some think Hebrew or some early form of it. We don't know for certain. We are told here that the spreading out that God had commanded under the Noahic covenant was not at all what man wanted to do here. Rather, they settled in this land of Shinar, which is uh, Babylonia or modern day. It's in modern day Iraq, uh, just up the on the Euphrates River, just up from uh, the Persian Gulf. They settle in this land and they say, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they're doing this in defiance of what God has said to do. He says to go across the whole earth, be fruitful and multiply, spread out and fill it. We don't want to do that. Let's build a city here with this tower lest we end up doing what God said we are to do. And so we're really not that far removed, at least in our narrative here, from the flood. And yet mankind en masse is gathering together and they're at it again in rebellion against God. Again, this corrupt nature, it's still here. Interestingly, this tower 
that they built. It's really not the main part of this story. We know this as the Tower of Babel. We're intrigued by questions about it, and, and that's fine. Uh, but, but it's really not the main, the main issue here. They're rejecting what God has called them to do. They're banding together to not do it. And God then has to disperse them forcefully. Now with this tower, it is almost certainly one of those uh, kind of step pyramid style towers. Um, a, a, a ziggurat. They're called not a cigarette, but a ziggurat. I, don't know, I think that's how you say it. There is one of these types of ancient towers found in the ruins of ancient Babylon. So those ruins are just, they're not far from uh, modern-day Baghdad. It's not likely the Tower of Babel that has been found, but a later one, some think maybe built upon the same site. That particular one that they found was dedicated to Marduk, the ancient god of the Babylonians, who some think uh, derives his name from Nimrod, the first king over it. That's a maybe. And it was essentially a temple. And so this may well indicate we're not going to do what God says. We're going to band together. This may well have been them creating a temple of sorts. Uh, Even that reference to its height being in the heavens. It's not likely that they thought they were actually going to climb up and somehow find God or something like that. Like way up above the clouds and so on. But it is certainly in defiance of God. It is out of Babylon that astrology gets its origin. And perhaps it has its roots right here. In looking up to the heavens in defiance of God Almighty. In establishing a different religion here. Now that may well be. But in our text, what we do see about this impressive work of architecture was that it was about making a name for themselves. What's told to us here is that this is a very human-centric operation. Whatever false gods might have been worshipped here at this time or in time, the obvious false god here is man himself. And again, we find in this some echoes of Adam and Eve. There's pride here. There's this desire to be like God. We're not going to do what he says. We're going to establish a name for ourselves in rebellion against God. Again, man's corruption remains. And rebellion continues. And we see here an effort to unite together in this rebellion, which is something of a new development At this point in Genesis, this banding together in one voice in rebellion. This uniting humanity together in defiance of God and in celebration of man, uh, this and man's greatness is not something that has gone away. It's still alive and unfortunately well. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But let's move on to this third point here. Man's confused language. We see this in verses 6 to 9. It's, I think it's fascinating that there's a certain acknowledgement from the Lord that these plans that man is making would result in man accomplishing much in a great achievement. 
So Moses uses here a a human manner of speaking when he speaks of God going down to to check in on the situation. It's as if God gets up and walks down there and, and checks it out. Of course, God already knows everything. He knows precisely what's going on. But I think what this does is remind us that God truly does see. He truly does understand. He is not one who passes judgment from afar uh, without a true grasp of the situation. So sometimes we'll do that or human beings will do that. We, We hear about something and we pass this judgment that we really aren't close to the situation. We don't really know the details um, but we're, we're quick to, to pass a judgment on it. Some people say you're judging from afar. This is not what God does. He knows perfectly well what's going on. He has a true grasp of the situation. And he says in verse 6, nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This will bring, if they're allowed to continue, a tremendous accomplishment. They'll be able to do much. But it is clearly implied here that this is obviously not a good thing in God's eyes. That is, God is saying that they will accomplish a tremendous amount of evil if this is permitted to go on. If I don't intervene and stop this. It's not that God is seeing man progress and he's sort of jealous or he doesn't want them to have nice things. And so he's going to just step in and ruin their fun and their advance. Progression in technology and building and whatnot is fine. We've already talked about that. It's fitting with what man is going to do. But he is interrupting and hindering the progress of evil in the world. That's what he's doing. And his solution to it is to confuse man's language here. And when we consider this, we can see that it is on the one hand a judgment God gives. Man is acting sinfully, and so he's judging them by causing this confusion in language, and now they're going to spread out and go their own way because they can't communicate. But we can also see that this act is a mercy from God. It restrains evil. And what happened the last time God looked down on earth and saw the wickedness of man spread out everywhere? He sent the flood. He destroyed, he wiped out creation. And this time he confuses their language and sends them on. It is a mercy to them, and it also restrains whatever wickedness they were going to be capable of that he speaks of. So verse 7 says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, all the earth, And they left off building the city. God confuses man's language and puts an end to their plans. It forces this scattering, this dispersion of man across the earth with his different nations and languages and lands, which we saw in chapter 10. Again, I I believe this to be the division that occurred in Peleg's day. The presence of Various nations uh, who speak in different languages is very fascinating to to consider. We we think of it often as a hindrance, and indeed it is a hindrance in many ways. How many tribes and nations war against one another, and they can really even hardly understand each other? Because of different language, different way of doing things. They're just very different people. It's difficult to even understand the way these folks think or operate. 
Understanding one another is a tremendous challenge as a result of this. And yet, and this is what I think is so fascinating about it, God's saying that's better than the alternative. Which would be to have every man speak his own language. The same language, I mean. That would result in a way greater evil, apparently, according to God. This spirit of Babel remains today. It's, we, could, we could see it in a, probably a lot of different places in a lot of different ways and work itself out. It is certainly present in modern It's often called globalism, which would seek to get rid of national boundaries, borders, any kind of national identity to work towards some sort of global utopia of some sort. You're supposed to just forget your own, the interests of those who live around you and, and, and trust those in charge and we're making the rules that this is all for the betterment of mankind and we will all come together and we're in this together, etc., etc., And at times, maybe at times, it can have a certain plausibility to it. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just all speak the same language? And yet God's telling us something very different here. That that would result in a tremendous amount of wickedness. For all the problems that arise from different languages and different nations, it is what God has done as both judgment, and so therefore there are problems that arise from it, but it's also a mercy. It restrains man's evil. One other mercy, just to consider, that one writer points to, and I believe it was Andrew Fuller, if you know Andrew of that name, uh, 1700s, a Baptist minister and theologian, if you know William Carey, the missionary friend to him. But he points out that Christians have often had this blessing that when being persecuted in one land or nation, when that authority wants to destroy Christians, Christians have often had the blessing of fleeing from that land to another nation, a different nation, where they would be welcomed, where they would be safe and protected. And if all the world then was under one godless rule, where would such people have turned? And so that's just one of the mercies that believers experience, can experience because of this. And we, sh- you know, and we shouldn't think that if there was uh, one uh, authority over all the earth, one governing authority, one human authority, and it's godless authority that they wouldn't turn their attack on the church. I mean, do we read our Bibles, and what is Satan's concern? Clearly, the Lord's people and the Lord. It would not be good for anybody. Let's continue, finally, to man's common hope. Man's common hope. In verse 10 of chapter 11, we begin a new section, a new generations of section. And it returns us now to the promised land. It begins with Shem and it moves us down to Abram. And so let's read through this, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. 
And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, if you remember chapter 10, he doesn't carry on with Peleg. He leaves it there and moves on with his brother. But now he's returned to the promise line. And he continues, when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. All of those listed there, we're told, had other sons and daughters as well. But the focus is on the descent down to Abram. And we will cover the life of Abram, this man, over the next few chapters, the next number of chapters, as the narrative of Genesis slows down drastically. So if you consider how much time has passed and all the different generations that have come and gone here already, and now we get to Abram, and then the rest of Genesis is really going to cover the life of Abram, or Abraham, his son Isaac, and then Jacob after him. And Jacob dies at the end of Genesis, and essentially the book ends at that point. So this genealogy takes us down to the sons of Terah, introduces us to Abram. And of course, we know that it is through him, through Abram, that the Messiah would come. Man continues on, corrupt under the Noahic covenant, but God continues to work out his plan of redemption. And as we'll see next time in chapter 12, the promise is made to Abram that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, the ultimate blessing through Abraham to all the families of the earth is the gospel. If you remember when we were in Galatians, Paul makes this very point that this, he says, was the gospel preached beforehand to Abraham. That as the message of Christ goes out into the world, that is what God was promising to Abraham to come from his descendants. And its intent then is to reach to all of the nations of the earth. So we've just read about the scattering of those nations across the earth, the judgment that is all these different languages, the divergent languages, but God is not yet done with all of the future offspring of Japheth, Ham, and Shem. When we get to the New Testament, think of the day of Pentecost. And what does everybody immediately wonder about? What are tongues? And, we, and the, the whole thing grinds to a halt, and we, have, we, we wonder about what tongues are. And for all the questions that exist, and there's legitimate questions, about the gift of tongues, we can miss the significance of it in light of the entirety of the Bible. 
the significance of the fact that God is fulfilling this promise to Abraham in a new and a very effective manner as he temporarily undoes Babel. He overcomes Babel with this gift, this miracle of this gift of tongues. So I want to read Acts 2, a few verses, beginning in verse 5. As they're preaching in tongues, we're told, tongues of fire descend upon them, they're preaching. Read it in light of what we've just come through here. Think, listen to it in light of what we've just come through. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this preaching and this tongues of fire, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, that's in our text, and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The blessing is going out to all nations. And here it is in miraculous fashion right there in Jerusalem. God overcoming Babel as the gospel is preached and they hear it in their own native tongue. Nations with different languages will be present on the earth until Christ returns. And there's no obvious political solution to every resulting struggle from that. But what God is doing is taking sinners from every nation, from every tongue, and forming them together into a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, making them into a kingdom, as we read in Revelation 5. This is what Pentecost was revealing. And Acts goes on in the rest of the New Testament to further reveal God is reclaiming a people from among those that he's scattered across the earth. And at Pentecost, it was a miraculous display of this, overcoming that obstacle of language that he himself had ordained. The common hope of mankind, of all nations on the earth, of every tribe and every tongue, is the offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. The common problem of man's sin and rebellion has been dealt with by Christ Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection on behalf of sinners the world over. And this blessing of Abraham continues to go forth and continues to build the kingdom of God, a holy nation. As God, through his word and through his people proclaiming that word, calls men and women to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The presence of various languages makes this great commission that the church is given to take this message out. It makes it something of a challenge to us. But it is a challenge God has given to us in his sovereignty. And he has his purposes. 
And it is a challenge that the church has taken up over the centuries by going, by supporting those who do, by translating the Bible into different languages and proclaiming Christ wherever we happen to be. It is a glorious mission. It is God's mission, ultimately, with his people as his ambassadors. Out of many nations on the earth, God is calling to himself one people, one body he is forming, a holy nation. This is a, such a kindness of God. And so, first and foremost, we should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And be thankful that God has not left us in scattered nations and weird tongues without the hope of redemption and the hope of God's grace. That he has looked upon us with pity and he has secured redemption in and through his son. And take our rest there. Be grateful there. But also, as his people by his grace... To also then look out again, that we might see the nations before us, our neighbors around us, with this good news that we possess, that we might be stirred to compassion. That we might not lose the focus of this. I mean, this is... This is the greatest story, isn't it? I mean, there's, not, there's no greater book you've read that's better than any of this. There's no movie that's, I mean, there's just nothing better. And yet we can so easily become distracted from it. This is, again, our, our sinfulness. And I'm not preaching down to anybody. I'm in this with you. We become so fascinated by so many things that are just so much interest to us. And it crowds out these things. We have the privilege of being in God's kingdom by his grace and then of taking that message to others, supporting those who do go out into all the earth. And we can't all go out into all the earth. We're not all called to go out and go elsewhere. We have real vocations that God calls us to be faithful in right here and now. But we can also be praying for those who are out there, praying for gospel advance. Is it our concern that the glory of Christ would be known among people? How often does that cross our minds if we're honest about it? Is it the desire of our hearts? Let us pray to that end. Let us rest ourselves in what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And let us pray for greater joy in that and greater desire to see Christ believed upon in the world. So let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we confess to you so often we are dull of hearing. Father, this is the greatest news there is. And we know it. We believe it. Father, I pray that you would restore 
the joy of it all to our hearts. Father, we don't just want a few hours of heightened joy in it and gladness, but we desire you to change our hearts that we might consistently grasp this. That we might consistently find our greatest treasure here. That we might consistently desire Christ to be known and believed on. That we would consistently and gladly pick up our cross daily. That that would not be oppressive to us, but that we would bear the reproach despising its shame, but even in joy as Christ did as he was nailed to the cross for us. Father, we, we know that you save by your grace and we praise you for this and we are thankful for this. And Lord, we pray that you would look upon us with mercy, that you might do whatever is needed in our hearts, that we might be even more concerned about these eternal matters and eager to have others know that we would desire to pray, that we would desire to help in any way we could. Father, these things remind us of that sinful nature that we still battle and the flesh that rises. And so again, we just give you praise that you are gracious, that you are faithful to forgive us our sins if we confess our sins to you. And we look forward to that day when we will worship around your throne with the people that you have called out from every tribe, nation, and tongue to worship you together with one voice. Encourage us with these things. Help us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.